In our study of Romans so far, we've been looking at the good news of the gospel as portrayed by the Apostle Paul. Um, and what a journey it's been already. Romans is so power-packed with, with teachings that we can live by and, and learn from. And today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8. A few weeks ago we looked at Romans 6 through 8, basically, as we looked at chapter 7. But um, Romans chapter 8 is probably the antithesis of my emotional uh, involvement with Romans chapter 7. I mentioned to you last time that Romans 7 was not my favorite chapter, probably my least favorite chapter. It was just a difficult passage. Paul's saying all kinds of things, and I, I struggle a little bit through some of what he's saying. But we looked at it in context, and I hope that it was clear as we try to, uh, to, to apply it to our lives that God wants us to live a life of freedom. Amen? Jesus said that if the Son of Man makes you free, then you are free indeed. And uh, Romans chapter 8 is, is, is where we find that anthem beginning. Paul is speaking rather, rather clearly about that in the first part of Romans chapter 8. And we're going to be exploring the, the rest of the chapter uh, today, Romans chapter 8, and I just invite you to bow your heads with me as uh, we have an additional word of prayer. Father in heaven, today we just thank you that we can trust you to lead us in our study of your word. We are finite, you are infinite. We are mortal, you're immortal. And yet you've, you've given us your word, your will, your directions, and we come to it recognizing our need for divine guidance as we study its pages. Today, as we look again at Romans, I just want to pray that your Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, that you would lead uh, my lips, that you would hide me behind the cross of Jesus, that he might be seen today. We pray in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 8 begins with this, this triumphant phrase from the Apostle Paul. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. No condemnation. He's just, he's just had this agonized struggle with, with how he feels condemned and how, how when he is trying in his, own, uh, in his own being, in his own flesh to do good, the law doesn't help him at all. It just makes him feel bad. It just condemns him because the law can't save. All the law can do is point out our unsaved condition. And so he says, you know, I, I try to do right, I try to do right, and, and I can't do right because there's another law in my members, he said in Romans 7, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin and death. Are we going to stay in captivity to the law of sin and death? No, he says in verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the what, everybody? After the flesh, but after the spirit. You see, there's a contrast Paul's going to develop in Romans chapter 8 between the life in the flesh and the life in the spirit. And that's what we're going to look at in the first part of our time together today. Notice verse 2. Verse 2 makes it crystal clear in my mind. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, I want you to recognize that back in Romans chapter 7, we don't have time to go through all this again, but um, you can get the CD or listen online. But in Romans chapter 7, he says, I see another law warring in my members, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin and death. Now, true or false, you cannot both be free from the law of sin and death and in captivity to the law of sin and death at the same time. It's impossible. Either you're in captivity or you're free. And Paul here is saying, if we're in Christ Jesus, if we're walking not according to the flesh, but after falling, living by the Spirit, there's no condemnation. And the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free, made us free from the law of sin and death. We don't have to be condemned by the law because Jesus' blood covers our sins. Amen? We don't have to be we don't have to have a guilt trip because we can't keep the law because it's His job to write His law in our hearts. That's the New Covenant experience He talks about in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, right? I will write my law in their hearts and put it in their most inward parts. That's His job. Our job is to follow the Spirit. Our job is to walk in the, in the newness of life that Jesus wants to give us. That's what we're going to explore here. Verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. This is what Paul's trying to say. Look, 
The law couldn't save us. The more I looked at the law, the more guilty I became and the worse I felt. The more hopeless it seemed. But as Jesus came, he demonstrated that in the flesh, through connection with the, with the, with the Father, we don't have to be in captivity to the law. We can instead have the law written in our flesh, in our hearts. That the righteousness of the law, verse 4, might be what? Fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Do you see a pattern developing here? In chapter, in chapter uh, 1, and, and I'm sorry, in verse 1, it says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In verse 4, again, walking not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You see this contrast that Paul is developing here? He says, for those that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now, let's be very clear here. I don't believe, and I don't think you believe, that Paul here is talking about the fact that when we are in human uh, you know, uh, flesh, that we cannot, we cannot please God. That's what he would go on to say in verse, in, in verse uh, 6 and 7 uh, and 8. <laughs> for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. I don't believe Paul's trying to say here that we cannot please God as long as we have these bodies. I don't think you probably believe that either. Um, because there's plenty of other verses that talk about us pleasing God. So this would be to put the Bible against the Bible. If we were to try to say that what Paul's theology is, he's trying to teach that because we have human bodies, we can't please God. The flesh that he's talking about is not simply our, you know, our hair follicles and our nail cuticles and, and the flesh that we have in, our, in, our, in our, our bones and our blood, our body. The flesh that he's talking about is a common term that he uses in the New Testament. He uses the, the term um, to speak about our, far, our fallen human nature, our carnal nature. And let me try to explain this in a way. This is deviating a little bit from the Bible. I just want to give you this, this illustration, if you please. See, I believe God made man perfect in the beginning, amen? I believe God made us upright. In fact, that's what the Bible says, but we've sought out devious ways. God made us upright in the beginning. He made us correct. Um, and, and when God made us in the beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, according to my understanding of Scripture, when God made us in the beginning, He made us with freedom of choice, right? Because He loves us. Without, lo without freedom of choice, there can be no love. There can be no relationship. You just have an automaton, a robot, a computer, something programmed. But He loves us, so He gave us freedom of choice. And as He gave us that freedom of choice, we had, in, a perfect, in the perfect state we were in, we had the ability to choose to obey Him. We didn't, have, we didn't require a miracle to, to follow God's instructions. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if we just simply, you know, sort of automatically our innate nature was to do the right thing? One way of illustrating that is to think of our, of our nature as being sort of two different components. I want to illustrate this, and this is where I'm saying this is an illustration. It's not something I'm teaching you as Bible truth, but just to help you sort of understand what happened at the fall. Um, the, what, some people have described it as the higher powers and the lower powers. Listen to me careful. The high, higher powers would be the, the intellect, the reason, and the conscience. In other words, God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Why? Not because it was poisonous. He didn't say that. He didn't say it was going to give them, you know, break out in hives or anything like that. In fact, it was proven to be good for food. The only reason they were not to eat of the fruit was simply because God said so, right? That's the ultimate test of obedience. Not when it makes sense to our minds, but when we obey just because God said so. And so that's, that's what the test was. They had, they had knowledge. They had an intellect. They had a reason and they had a conscience, you see? And God made them in such a way in the beginning that they could, they could, they could of their own strength and their own abilities, they were able to choose to obey God. We have the higher powers. We also have the lower powers. And God made these perfect also. We, we categorize the lower powers as the appetites, the passions, the desires. Okay? And the way God made us in the beginning, it was just that way, the higher powers and the lower powers. Our appetite was in control of our intellect, reason, and conscience. Does this make sense? 
We could naturally do what was the right thing to do because we could choose. Our higher powers kept our lower powers in subjection. What happened when man sinned, when man chose, instead of following Jesus' instructions, God's instructions, when man chose instead to follow the tempter's instructions and to eat of that fruit of the tree which was forbidden, there came a fallen nature wherein there's a reversal of how God made it. And any of you who've tried to overcome your own tendencies on your own strength can testify that our, we no longer naturally have our appetite, reason, and conscience in control of our... What did I say? Intellect, reason, and conscience in control of our appetites, passions, and desires. In fact, we are powerless of our own strength. We keep doing the things we don't want to do. That's what he talked about in Romans chapter 7, isn't it? I know the right thing to do, but I can't do it. That's not how God made us in the beginning. And conversion is where God, not in a permanent sense, because that would sort of subrogate the rest of our choice, but in, a, in, God, in, a, in cooperation with our decisions, God empowers once again our intellect, reason, and conscience to give us victory over our appetites, passions, and desires. That's the miracle that I believe we need. And so when we talk about living after the flesh, it's not talking about, it's not talking about living in a human body. That's not it at all. In fact, if you want just a couple of verses, let me, let me just show you one verse why I don't believe this is true. I don't believe the flesh is talking about our, our physical body. Look with me in... Um, let's look in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter, keep your finger in Romans 8, because we're going to be coming right back there. 1 Peter chapter 4, and here's, here's an illustration of how the flesh is used. 1 Peter chapter 4, this is Peter speaking, but this is in harmony with the way Paul uses this term as well. He says in verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. Now, we could stop right there and we could say, well, of course Christ suffered in his physical body. He was nailed to the cross, right? And so he could be talking about that, if this is as far as we read. But if we read on, notice what he says. Arm yourselves, in the same way as Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. What's he talking about here? Is he telling us that we should go out and, and, and be, um, you know, torturing our bodies? Should we go out and have ourselves crucified? Notice what it says, the next phrase. For he who has suffered in the flesh has what? Ceased from sin. Whoa. This is where, in the Middle Ages, some people got the idea that if you wanted to have freedom from sin, you had to abuse your body. You had to, you know, have the, the flagellations and, and torture and chain yourself to a monastery wall and try to be holy. Try, try. But that's not what, that's not what Peter is trying to say at all. He says, arm yourselves like with the same mind. Christ suffered in the flesh. What does that mean? Paul would explain it this way. I am crucified with Christ. Those who are Christ, Paul would say, we're going to look at this in a little while. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. That's our appetites, passions, and desires. Is this simple or what? Now, what I want us to do as we get through this study of Romans chapter 8, what I want us to see is how we can experience this. This is what's important, really. This is where the rubber meets the road. Paul's contrasting in Romans chapter 8. You can look back with me there now. Paul's contrasting the life living whatever the carnal nature desires, whatever the flesh desires. I know I, I, know I shouldn't be doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I don't have power over myself because there's a law in my members bringing me into captivity to the law of sin and death. Jesus wants to set us free from that experience, friends. Jesus wants to give us power his grace is sufficient to free us from the power of the enemy. Do you believe that? If the Son of Man sets you free, you are free indeed. So we're going we're gonna to contrast here these verses. Notice with me. We've already read down through verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. Not that you're a disembodied church member. That's not what Paul's saying. 
He's not saying that at all. You are not in the flesh because you've chosen a different life. Like Henry, you've decided that the old person, the old person's dead. And each day, each day, you are depending on the power of the Holy Spirit to give you life, spiritual life. I want to tell you, friends, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. If your religion consists nothing other than what you can do by yourself, your religion is worthless. Jesus doesn't want us to just be a bunch of self-help, you know, maybe I can go get hypnosis or I can get this. I'm sure there's good counseling and there's good psych psychology and psychiatry and all good principles that you can learn to help uh, yourself and your thinking processes and so forth. But ultimately, what Jesus can do for us, it far exceeds anything that we can do for ourselves. And we need, I'm speaking for myself, I need daily a miracle. Like this preacher this preacher needs a miracle. Unless I have a miracle, I will be lost. I can't do it by myself. Only the miracle of Jesus saving me can save me. If your religion it consists of nothing more than what you can do for yourself, your religion is really worthless. We want to see what God can do for us. Amen? We want to see what Jesus can do. And this is what he's saying. So then you, um, verse, verse 9, but you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of Christ or Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It's, it's one or the other. It's not, it's not sort of halfway or, or semi. It's one or the other. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Now he introduces a little different word here. Instead of the flesh, he says the body, but he's talking about the same thing. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from, your, from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Is that good news or what? Are you with me, brothers and sisters? Would you agree with me that it took a miracle of divine power to raise Jesus from the dead? Do you see what Paul's trying to say here? Do you agree that Paul is trying to say that we as Christians ought to experience the same power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus experienced? Is that pretty clear? I mean, he's not beating around the bush. He's not being, he's not being equivocal about it. He's being very clear that God wants us to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to quicken our bodies, to resurrect, in other words, to give breath, give life to our spiritual souls. And that, friends, is a miracle. It's not something I can do. I don't care how much I, I, don't care how much I pay my tithe or I obey this or that or if I, I don't care what kind of life I live. It doesn't matter. Only a miracle of divine grace can give me spiritual life. And that's why Jesus says you must be born again of water and of the Spirit. John chapter 3. Therefore, the conclusion, based upon the fact that just preceded that. Does it say therefore in your translation? First of verse the first of verse 12? Based upon the fact that the Spirit of, of Christ, which raised Jesus from the dead, can also quicken your mortal bodies. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. We're not required to follow the lives that we once lived. No, he says, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now let's look at a little bit of a contrast here. I just want to run through what we've seen already in Romans chapter 8. If you'll notice with me here, we have walking after the flesh versus living by the Spirit. We have the law of sin and death, which um, is said to be... Uh, bringing us into captivity, or we're brought into captivity in our, in our members. We also have the law of the Spirit of life on the other side of this, this contrast. On one hand, those who have the law of sin and death are minding the things of the flesh. On the other side, they're minding the things of the Spirit. We've already seen these verses here in Romans chapter 8. He says, to be carnally minded is death, not good. To be spiritually minded is much better, isn't it? It's life and peace. 
right? Um, wonderful, wonderful uh, contrast that we have here. If we don't have the Spirit, he says in, in the last few verses we read, we are not Christ's. If we are born again by the Spirit, we'll be mortifying the deeds of the body through the Spirit, and the Spirit will be raising us to walk in newness of life. Compare this to Romans chapter 6, and you'll see it's very, very clear. Paul's developing a theme here. Remember, the chapter divisions are artificial. They came, they came about in the 12th century, 13th century, and um, Paul is developing a theme here about how the old man dies, the new man is born again. Now let's look at what the fruits of the flesh are. These are the appetites, passions, and desires. I, that's my terminology, not the Bible's, but um, for me it, it helps me to, to understand what he's talking about. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 19 through 21. And um, before we get there, um, while you're turning there, I'm going to read a few verses prior to that. Um, this is, again, I want you to see how similar the passage here is to the passage we've just been reading in Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 16, he says, This then I say, walk in the Spirit. Does that sound familiar? Walk in the Spirit, that you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Right? So one hand you have the flesh, walk after the flesh, the other hand you have the living after the Spirit. Again, he's saying, walk after the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Does that sound like a promise to you? Aren't you thankful for the promises of God's Word? I'm just so thankful that we can claim. I love the way it says, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, says, all the promises of God in Him, in Jesus, are yea and amen. Um, when we're in Christ, we're a new creature, Right? And we're, and we're in Christ. The promises are ours to claim. That's the wonderful, wonderful promise. So he says, walk in the Spirit. You will not re- fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh, verse 17, lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Again, this is a one-sentence summary of Romans chapter 7, isn't it? He's talking the same theme here. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And it's very clear if we compare with Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8 what he's talking about here. Verse 19, for the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, and I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not, what? Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul gives us this list, and most of us sitting in church in our best behavior, we can say, well, that list doesn't describe me. (laughs) But if I'm honest... If the preacher is honest, I have to recognize that that list describes my natural state. Oh, I haven't murdered. What is it? There's some things there that are a little more subtle than murder, aren't there? Like envyings and gossip and strife and variance and, and you know, this type of an attitude. I think sometimes the sanctified sins are the hardest for God to work on in our hearts, aren't they? Things like pride. Because it's easy for us to sit in church and sort of, you know, pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm not in that list. But the fact is, either we are experiencing a miracle of death and new birth, or that list is describing us, right? It's describing me. And I'm so thankful that Paul doesn't stop there. In Romans, in Galatians chapter 5, he's contrasting the fruits of the flesh, the works of the flesh, he, the way he says it, with the fruits of the what? This contrast is going on, and, and we see it here in the next few verses. Rome, uh, Galatians 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with affections and lusts. How does this happen? Let me tell you, friends, if you can understand, if you can experience how this happens, you've experienced what God's will is for you, I believe. 
This, I believe, is the, where the rubber meets the road, if you want to call it, of the Christian life. It's learning, not of our own strength. You know, I can't just go out and decide, well, you know what? Today looks like a great day. It's February 22nd, sun shining outside. So, and, and plus, I ate a good dinner last night, and I slept so-so. You know, I slept enough. I should be able to take care of myself today. Those, that, you know, that pride, I'm going to humble myself. That envy when I see something or hear something or whatever, you know what, I'm just going to be happy. Patience when someone really crosses me wrong, because I ate enough and I slept enough and because it's sunny today, you know, endorphins and all that, I'm going to be fine. Is that the way it works? Listen, the devil doesn't care. I'll be honest with you. My own experience, I've found that the way the devil works, he's sort of like, he's sort of like a, hmm, I don't know how to compare it, but what he does is he's smart. And in my life, at least, he, he sees me wake up, and it's sunny, and I'm feeling good, and I'm thinking, you know what, I, I've got this. You know, I, I, today, I, I, I'm a Christian. And without even really talking too much to God or spending much time in prayer, even before I get out of bed off and I want to pray and commit my life to Christ, but sometimes I just, I just feel like I've got it. I've got it under control. You know, after all, yesterday went pretty well, maybe even the day before that. And uh, I go out on the day thinking I'm doing fine. And you know what? The devil doesn't care. He, I think he backs off. There's nothing that says the devil has to always be tempting us, right? There's nothing that says he always has to give us trials or test our faith or any of those things. He can do whatever he wants. He could have everything going just rosy, just peachy. And that's what happens. A few days of that, and guess what? I'm on top of the world. Everything's just fine. I'm going well, and I'm depending on myself. And then something comes into my life. And I'm embarrassed to say it. But the devil's got me where he wants me because he's got me without the power of the Spirit living in my life, without me even realizing I need Jesus today. And something comes up and it's pretty obvious that old Chester's still alive. You can't just make yourself patient because you will yourself to. You can't make yourself humble. You know, oh, I used, to be, I used to be proud, but I turned out pretty well after all. That's the type of humility we're going to have if we try to make ourselves humble. God wants to do a miracle for us, and it means daily staying close to Jesus. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. So, this is the contrast that Paul's developing in Romans chapter 8. It's found other places in his writings. You saw it here in Galatians chapter 5. It's found in a number of places, but it's most, it's most illustrated right here in Romans chapter 8. He just draws it out, verse after verse after verse, contrast, living after the flesh, walking after the flesh, living after the Spirit, living by the Spirit. And I love the way it says here. I love the way it says that in Romans chapter 8, let's get back there. Romans chapter 8, I love what it says in verse, six, uh, verse, 15, uh, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the what? Sons of God. Friends, you can take the Bible and you can take it apart into all the little components. And, and you know the Bible just fits together. Do you know the Holy Spirit inspired this book? Have you ever noticed that? How are we born again? We're born again into the kingdom of God, right? When we're born again, we become the sons of God. Well, it's no surprise then. When we're born again, we're led by the Spirit. We're born again with water and the Spirit. We become the sons of God. We're led by the Spirit of God. It all just sort of fits together, doesn't it? That's the way the Bible works. And we can see these themes running through Jesus' teachings, and surprise, we see them running through the apostles' teachings, because they were followers of Jesus, the one who they had learned from, and they had begun to experience this for themselves. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And, and the way I always cross-reference this to Romans chapter 1 and verse 12, which says, for as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. It's receiving Jesus, isn't it, that we are born again water and of the Spirit, and we become the sons of God. Notice what it says here, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Wow. Okay, now Paul's trying to say, look, you've seen this contrast. You've seen the two, the two different camps, the two categories, and we all know where we naturally fit. At least I know where I naturally fit. I fit over here in the works of the flesh. Paul's now going to start giving us some ideas of how we can experience what's on the other side. And what he first says, what he first points us to is our position. 
I want us to see what, 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 he's trying to, what he's trying to bring out here in verses 14 through 17. We are the sons of God, and we've been adopted by this Spirit. He calls them the Spirit of adoption. The Spirit makes us children of God. That means that we are not slaves to sin anymore. No, 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 no. You cannot be slaves if you're a prince or a princess. You can't be. You're the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. You, are, you, are, you have a heritage. You have an, an ancestry. You have an inheritance that is far greater than that. And that's why we can say, if we're in trouble, we can say, Abba, Father, listen, we need to remember who we are if we want to have an experience with Jesus that's better than the experience we had yesterday. We need to remember who we are. We are children of the King. And the king is on the throne. The king of the universe has power, and he's wanting to give it to us. It's accessible. We can say, Daddy. That's what Abba means. Here, Paul is using sort of a, a, sort of a, a, a colloquialism or a, a figure of speech that's it's not the official you know, father. It's Abba. It's Daddy. That's our position. We have a relationship when we're born into the family of God, we have a relationship with the God of the universe. Hallelujah. What a wonderful, wonderful opportunity we have. Our position is a position of children, not of slaves, not of servants, but of children. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. And if heirs, uh, joint heirs with Christ. Jesus is our elder brother. Isn't that wonderful? I mean... I get excited. Do you get excited about this? This is wonderful stuff that Paul is trying to show us, trying to teach us. We are children of God and joint heirs with Christ. Well, hey, and Paul's going to develop this. Listen, don't hold on to your seats. It's not over yet. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Then he transitions from our position as children, as sons. He's reminding us that just because we are children and sons, it does not mean that everything is going to go the way we want it to go in this life. The next few verses, Paul's talking, he's talking about the real gospel to real people. They're not some theoretical church that has everything together and their suits are all pressed and everything's fine. He's talking to people in Rome, believers in Rome, Jews in Rome, that he wants to read this letter. And he's recognizing there are things in their lives that aren't going very well. People have problems. People are persecuted. People have tragedies occur. And Paul's going to explain to, him, to them and to us, the gospel doesn't take us out of this world. It sustains us through this world. When we're not, we're still in the world, but not of the world. We have a power, a, a, someone holding our hand. We have an elder brother. And just like Jesus, as the Son of God, was not exempt from going through this life on this earth, we won't expect to be exempt from the troubles and trials of this life either. You know, there are some people who focus so much on what some have called a prosperity gospel, that, that individuals have been led to believe if something's going wrong in their life, it's because God's not happy with them. I want you to know something, brothers and sisters, friends. Paul talks to real people with real problems, real trials, real struggles. And he points us to Jesus, who went through a real life with real troubles and real struggles, and parents and and, and siblings that didn't understand him, and a, a dysfunctional home, and, and, and disciples that didn't understand him, that forsook him and fled and denied him and betrayed him. And, and Jesus went through those things. Why would we think the servant is greater than the Lord, right? Why would we think that we don't have to go through some of those experiences as well? And so he says, uh, we are joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon, and here he is, he's, he's, he's applying it practically to, to, the, to this life in which we're living. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. 
This is what Paul wants to keep as our perspective. Our perspective is to say, look, we are citizens of the heavenly nation. We are pilgrims passing through here. We don't have to have everything just right in this life because you know what? It's just a moment and we have eternity to look forward to. And so our perspective is the perspective of eternity. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, this present age, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature awaits for the manifestation of the sons of God. I want, you to, I want you to notice here what Paul's now arguing. He's saying, let's stop thinking about ourselves. Too often when we think about our religious walk, we're thinking, I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I want to be saved. Paul's now pointing our attention, our, our perspective to eternity, but he's saying, look, it's not just about me. Do you realize, Paul says, that the entire creation is suffering because of mankind's sin? Notice what he says. That's exactly what he's talking about. He says in verse 20, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. Whose fault is it? It's our fault. But notice what he said in verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now let's do some just context Bible study here. What did we just learn were the sons of God? Those who were led by the Spirit of God. Friends, this whole life world of sin is waiting for a manifestation of the sons of God. That's what he says. All of creation's groaning and travailing and pain together until now. Why? Because the... God is waiting for a revelation of Himself, His character, His love through His people. He's waiting for a group of people who are led by the Spirit of God. Look, hold this thought for me one second. We're not going to take the time because we're running out of time. Matthew 24 and verse 14, what does it say? This gospel of kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then what? Then will come. You see, my friends, this is, a, this is not a contrast or contradiction. It's the same thing. The gospel of the kingdom will not be preached in all the world when we get all of our theology and doctrines right. The gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in all the world when we're led by the Spirit of God and we reflect His love to a watching, dying world. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14 talks about the harvest of the earth. There's a picture there. We won't turn there, but there's a picture of the second coming, Jesus on the cloud. And he says, thrust in your sickle for the harvest of the earth is ripe. What's ripe? God's people are led by his spirit, reflecting his message to the world. And on the other hand, I suppose, those who have rejected his spirit have made their final decision as well. I like the way it says it in Christ's Object Lessons, little book on the parables of Christ. When the fruit is brought forth, he's quoting here um, the parable of Jesus. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. What he's waiting for, he's waiting for God's people, us, to demonstrate what the Spirit can do in fallen humanity. Love as he loved and live as he lived. So we have here the position. We have here the perspective. I want us to look now at the next few verses, our predestination. I want us to notice here what he says in verses 28 and onward. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Remember that's that's still talking about our perspective. We can, uh, we can understand there's things happening in this world, but we can know that God's going to bring good from it. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, let's just stop here. And I, I, I have many good friends who believe that this is talking about God has chosen some people to be saved and some people to be lost. I tend to see it a little differently simply because, one reason, because um, certainly um, we don't study this verse in a vacuum from the rest of the Scripture. I believe God gives us freedom of choice. But nevertheless, even in this passage, we have here, we have those who He has, notice what He says, whom He had predestinated, He also called, and whom He called, He justified, and whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, what is glorification? We understand what justification is, right? Being forgiven for our sins. What's glorification? How many of you have already experienced glorification? Who alone has experienced truly, I guess, glorification? Jesus Christ. And so, if we look at, if we look at what he's saying here, he's not saying that we've already been glorified. What he's saying is, God's will is that we are. Now, um, we don't have time to go into all this in detail, but I just want to say that this to me is very, very comforting, what Paul is trying to say. Because looking at that contrast of tables and recognizing where I too often fall in that contrast, living after the flesh or living by the Spirit, it's very comforting to me to recognize one truth, and this is what Paul's trying to, to drill into our hearts and minds today. It's God's will for you to be saved. He says it the same elsewhere, doesn't he? He's not willing that how many should perish? Any should perish. God's will is that nobody's lost, that everybody's saved. But remember, he respects our freedom, doesn't he? Because without freedom, there is no such thing as relationship or love. And so here he says, he says, whom he did predestinate, he also, um, whom he did foreknow, how many of us did he foreknow? All of us. So all of us, he's saying, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. For whom he did predestinate, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? This is good news, friends. Because if you ever feel hopeless, and I hope and pray you do, because if you don't feel hopeless, you're not going to cast yourself on the merits of an amazing Savior. If you think there's still hope in what you can do and how you can obey and how you can do better and how you will not be saved. If you ever feel hopeless, this is good news because it tells us, friends, it tells us that if God's will is for us to be saved, He's on our side. And if God's on our side, we can do it. Not we, but He can do it, right? We have hope to be saved because it's God's will for us to be saved. God has chosen for us to be saved. In all of eternity, as He's looked forward and He's seen eternity, He has prepared a mansion for you. He's prepared a mansion for me. It's His choice. It's His desire for us to not only be, not only to be foreknown, not only to be called, not only to be justified. It's His will for us to be glorified and live with Him forever. And if God's for us, who can be against us? This is, oh, I love this, friends. If He that spared not His own Son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Listen, Paul's saying, if, if Jesus would come down to this earth and die on Calvary's cross, if God would give us that amazing gift, pouring out all of heaven to die for our sins, risking the throne of the universe, if God would do that, do you think he's just going to stand back and fold his arms and say, okay, I've done my part, you can see if you can do yours. Paul's using logic here, and he's simply saying, look, that's illogical. If God would give Jesus, which is the most valuable gift, anything, by far the most valuable gift heaven could ever give, don't you think he's going to give us anything else we need in order to live in eternity with him? He would send every angel out of heaven, if needed, to give us victory over the devil. He would pour out his soul unto death. He'll pour out heaven for our salvation. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who delivered up his own son for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things, anything that is needed? And then he says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, that is risen, even as the right hand of the throne of God who makes intercession for us. And Paul can 
concludes this, uh, this passage here with the, uh, with the, with the, uh, with the uh, explanation of the promise. He says, and let's start reading in verse 35, "...who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword?" As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Isn't it a wonderful thing? That no matter what happens in this life, no matter what position we may hold in society, no matter what struggles or difficulties or persecutions or even trials or mistakes we may have, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. William Ward said, God wants us to be victors, not victims, to grow, not grovel, to soar, not sink, to overcome, not be overwhelmed. That's what God's will is for us. And you know, when I think about this passage, I think of two things. Number one, Paul is trying to tell us we don't have an excuse When we come to the judgment bar of God, no one's going to be able to, with a straight face, honestly say, you know what, I didn't accept Jesus as my Savior because there were hypocrites in the church. The Bible here says, nobody else, no other creature can separate us from the love of God. The only way that we're going to be lost, my friends, is if we choose to be lost. We're going to take full responsibility. I remember one time I was teaching Christian school and one of my graduates called 2 o'clock in the morning. She was really angry. I don't remember what had happened. Her dad confiscated her computer or something. She was really, really upset and she called and she's just like, I just want to do something crazy. I want to do something to hurt them. I want to, I want to go out and just be crazy, do something, you know, wild and make them just mad and hurt. And I'm thinking, okay, who are you going to hurt? You know? You're just going to hurt yourself. And ultimately, part of growing up, and this is what I used to tell teenagers a lot, part of growing up is realizing we have responsibility for our own lives. I'm not the way I am I can't excuse just because my parents were this way or that way. I choose. And Paul here, I think, is reminding us that we have personal responsibility. We can't blame other people. We've got to start taking an introspective look in ourselves, but there's something even greater than that. The main idea Paul is trying to bring across here, I believe, is that Jesus' love is forever, eternal, and unconditional. Notice what he says. For I am persuaded, verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends of mine today, what's the secret? What's the secret to living a life living by the Spirit? Well, first, of course, we have to be born of the Spirit. But then we remember our position. We're children, sons. At any time, we can say, Daddy. And the unlimited resources of omnipotence are at our command. Second is our perspective. We're not here for the long haul. This is just a brief moment, a vapor like on the morning grass, a dew on the morning grass. It's here and it's gone. We're living for eternity. Does that thing that that church member said to me really have to make me mad? Not if I see it from the perspective of eternity, right? Allow the Holy Spirit to give us, uh, give us His perspective. Know that it's God's will for us to be saved. And if it's God's will, if we ask anything, what does Jesus say? If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, right? If we ask according to His will, He's going to give it to us. Ask. Ask. Because it's His will for us to be saved. Finally, our promise. Paul does not focus on the law. 
to show us how we can overcome the flesh. He focuses on the love of Christ. He focuses on the sacrifice of God for us. He focuses on God's eternal power and God's eternal love and His promise that He'll never let us go. That He loves us so much, He will never abandon us. If you want to walk after the Spirit, remember your position. Remember your perspective. Remember that you're predestined to eternal life. And remember the promise of God's eternal love. Focus on Jesus, not on the law, not on the sin, not on the struggles. Focus on Jesus. And by God's grace, through a miracle, day by day, He will work in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. I don't know about you, friends, but I want to be a victor, not a victim. I want to grow and not grovel, to soar and not sink, to overcome not be overwhelmed. And that's what I believe Jesus wants for you and for me today. Is that your desire too? Would you like to join me today in asking Him to give us that a miracle of a new life of walking, living by the Spirit? Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we just thank you that we can. We can trust in your grace. We can trust in your goodness. We can trust in your eternal, everlasting, unconditional love. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to invite us to spend eternity to you, with you. Thank you, as the, as, the, as the book of Revelation says, that the Spirit is, is and, and the bride are saying, come. And whosoever hears, let him say, come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Oh, Lord, that invitation means us. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's your choice, your desire. And I just pray that we might marvel in that love, that we, might, that we might focus our eyes on Jesus, that we might look away from self and feeling sorry for ourselves and feeling justifying, uh, need to justify ourselves, and that we might just look to Jesus, and by looking, we might live. By looking to Jesus, we might be saved. Oh, Lord, today I pray there's someone here who is wanting to live by the Spirit, wanting that power. Maybe their Christian experience has just been a formal religion, but not, not experiencing the power of it. There are many, Lord, you've said it would be this way in the last days, who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. We want to know the power. We want the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to quicken our bodies, our minds, our souls to write that law in our hearts that we might love and live for Him. So today, Father, I just pray. You know each heart. You see each decision. Seal that decision with Your Spirit. Help us to remember this week we are children of the King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.